0: hello and welcome to the podcast brian and joey glad to have you here today
1: well thank you very much Karen. it's a pleasure to be here and we look forward to an interesting conversation absolutely
0: so you both just finished the book Uh, on uh, leadership matters, confronting the hard choices facing higher education. And one of the things that interested me immediately when I read the book was a chapter, of course, called Accreditation, Athletic Conferences and Beyond. What prompted you to collect those two very diverse topics into one chapter? And either one of you can go first.
1: Well, Joey, Joey, why don't you speak to it since you're the primary uh, writer for this particular chapter? Sure.
2: I'd be happy to. Um, you're right, I mean, it's, it's not immediately obvious why you would, you would put those together. But when you start thinking about accreditors and athletic conferences, as a college or university, it is, they are the, really the two bodies that you deal with that are made up of your peers, that set up their own rules, and that hold their members accountable to those rules. So they're very similar in a lot of ways um you know both are are governed uh, as peer organizations um you know as a college president you're 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 generally aligned with with both organizations as far as as being involved um serving as a peer with other institutions uh, attending meetings all those sorts of things but really i mean they're they're they're, they're very similar and and you know it is unusual, uh, even uh, even amongst higher ed institutions, to have organizations that are peer-based that really hold their members accountable. Uh, you know, that can sanction members that can that can sanction them quite harshly, actually, and uh, and and that is that is unique. I think it is a it's a very uh, very higher ed centric model, because uh, I think higher education is comfortable with that model of allowing their peers to police them in that way. But it, it, uh, to be an effective leader uh, in the role, either as a president or as a, as a senior staff member, understanding that that's the way they work and that uh, you know it's not that they're, they're foisting their values on you, their values are your values. I think we saw this quite a bit in, in discussions around uh, the NCAA Division I athletes and, uh, and, and the way their, their scholarship model would work going forward, many, many leaders acted as if they weren't a member of NCAA, but in fact, they were not only a member, they had they'd been involved in making the rules. So, uh, you know, this is a very different, uh, different kind of, of, of challenge as a leader to be involved with an outside entity such as that. And and they're very similar challenges. So, um, and and they're not just challenges. They're also very similar in providing the positive benefits of having a group that holds you accountable to certain standards uh, that everyone agrees are not only appropriate, but for the good of the institutions and for the good of the organizations.
1: You know, I'd say, Karen, that these are important because you spend a lot of time there and because they're expressions of your own sense of self your own sense of the culture that is both internal and external and in a sense the accreditors allow you to think strategically about where you want to take that culture on in terms of the accrediting the regional accreditors and the athletic teams really link the external and the internal constituencies so that it can reinforce the traditions and the culture that really best express, express the mission and scope of the institution that you serve.
0: So let's extend that topic a little bit and explain sure, to our sure. listeners the role and power that regional versus national accreditation has for each institution.
2: Well, I guess I'll start with that. Sure. Um, just a little history lesson. Uh, regional accreditors uh, were effect- effectively uh, invented by uh, the Department of Education. So when the federal government uh, decided to get into both heavily regulating education and also providing it substantial flows of money, it needed a way to assess whether a, a, a given institution was, uh, was worthy of effectively of those funds and, and was in compliance with, with federal Laws, and they looked around. I mean, there was a discussion of doing it at the federal level, but there had already been several uh, regional uh, associations set up, not as as accreditors at that point, but as associations of institutions, particularly in the southeast, and they were effectively repurposed regionally to to effect, effectively vet their own peer institutions. And it was thought, like we just discussed, that, that, that peer reviewers and peer institutions would, would would make better judgments in regard to assessing uh, uh, those institutions. And effectively, that's that's the way it's been broken up since the federal government got into the higher ed business. Um, national creditors are a totally different animal. They typically are disciplinary-based, uh, things like nursing or. You know, accounting or whatever, and they look very specifically at discipline on campus. They have a lot of, of requirements typically that are specific only to that discipline. And while that can be very powerful from the standpoint of, of maintaining a high quality program, unlike a regional accreditor that's looking at the institution, this focus on a single discipline can really create some friction on campus in regard to what that means for other disciplines. Uh, you know, uh, John Lombardi, who's you know, kind of a famously quotable uh, college university president, has said, "You know, if, if, if they tell you you need three starships, you better get three starships, and if that means you don't have a history department, so be it." Um, you know, and, and that that is the the difficulty of dealing with national accreditors. I think Brian has had some real experience with this at some of the institutions he's led.
1: Uh, I I have, and I'll I'll approach it in in sort of to complement what Joey said, I'll approach it in a slightly different way. You're sitting there as the chair of the board of trustees or maybe the college or university president, and you've got a charter and bylaws. And you've got to figure out how to maintain the sense of mission and the scope and scale of the institution in light of the charter and the bylaws. On the other hand, at the state level, as well as the federal level, you have legislators in particular, and often governors, who are interested in seeing you know, what's in it for me, that is what's in it for the people of picking on, since you're at Penn, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, where I spent 20 years, what the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania is getting in return for its dollars. Now, you're going to have to find a way to facilitate that discussion. And the only way you can facilitate it is not to become in a decentralized system of American higher education, a centralized system of American higher education where you report directly to the governing bodies, but you have to find a way to mediate. And often what accreditors do is they mediate the discussion and they also anticipate very often where the culture, the national political and culture, the national political culture is headed. Mm. So that there is a focus, for example, in national accreditation and in regional accreditation increasingly on things like strategy and on outputs, because there is anticipation as they mediate between and among the groups, that's where the political folks who control the dollars or Pell grants and other kinds of levels of support are likely to push you. And therefore, if they can mediate that discussion so much, the better.
0: You mentioned Pennsylvania, of course, Pennsylvania is undergoing a pashi examination. It is Uh, six schools are being merged down to two, whatever those merger looks like. Accreditation plays a huge role in this. Do you have any comments about basically the accreditation is supposed to come up any day now, I think.
1: Well, I'd say it's a very complex situation in Pennsylvania. Before I was the president at Bucknell and at Washington and Jefferson, I was the head of the Association of Independent Colleges and Universities. My job basically was to say no to the expansionist tendencies of the state-related and the PASI system. So I knew a lot about it because I was the guy who was was the sort of Counterbalancing effect in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania has had a long sort of evolutionary history that is complex. Uh, if you look at the state related, you understand the complexity. And I have to under, and I have to say, without the experiment being completed, that PASHI undertook what was a kind of revolutionary moment in the history of higher education. It decided not only to combine and condense some campuses, but to focus them in very particular ways. Now, I can't say that it's going to work, but I can say that there was innovation grafted on and experimentation grafted on to the way they usually did things that allowed them to define themselves in ways that are, in many respects, more focused and more specific than the state related to the community colleges, and they deserve a good deal of credit for that.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Um, you write, the role of athletics must be shaped by campus culture and not by special relationships. Elaborate on what you mean. So many think it's just about prestige and history.
1: Joey, you wanted to start there?
2: Sure. I mean, clearly these, these athletic traditions have storied histories. So we're not we're arguing against that. But in the life of the typical undergraduate, and I think this is where you find a difference between alumni and trustees you know, and the typical undergraduate, they think about an institution that largely doesn't exist anymore. It's an institution that might be 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And the typical undergraduate sees the institution in this four year window. And for them, athletics, uh, you know, is a, depending on the institution, is, is both an activity that they value greatly. There are many institutions now, particularly uh, you know, smaller institutions that have a large number of, of student athletes as part of their, uh, their, camp, their makeup of their, their student body. And therefore that becomes a majority of activity on campus. And then you know, even at the largest institutions, it's a, it's a communal activity that brings the community together, focuses it on, you know, on healthy competition and that gives students something to to fill their time. And that is kind of the way we think about it, because as college and university leaders, yes, you have to to be very diligent about uh, cultivating alumni and trustee uh, views on athletics and what it does for the institution. But the reality when it comes to student life and the life of student athletes, is very much about how it's embodied in the day to day and how you approach it uh, from the leadership standpoint, and you know, and that can be that can be a broad range of things. I mean, we were, we saw some institutions recently change their uh, the structure of their their daily class schedules. Uh, something that seems pretty pretty small, but you know, going for example, moving from a th- say a three hour standard class to a four hour standard class. Some institutions have done that, and then even gone to smaller mini terms that allow for classes to only be taught in the morning, uh, and and in you know more substantial blocks, leaving of course large blocks in the afternoon and evening for other activities. Uh, you know, uh, let's be honest, a lot of that was was to make uh, athletics more well, more easily fit within the schedule. When you try to space those classes out in labs all, you know, all throughout the day, it really does put a press on time for athletics or frankly any other performance, whether you know, it could be, it could be uh, theater or ballet or whatever. I mean, it's, it all fits into that rubric. So you know, I think that the, the, the campus leaders have become more flexible in their thinking about how to make uh, the, the, the experience uh, one that fits within the, the sort of mission and the 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 way that this
1: institution sees itself. Interesting. Yeah. yeah the the way I the way I think Karen I'd respond to this is is again it complements what Joey's saying, but look, when you graduate from a college or university, what's your focus after graduation? Well you may have a focus, you've had strong Greek life, you may have a focus on Greek relationships in terms of your ties to the institution. You may have a relationship with your academic department, but the relationship that the tie that binds, if you will, is often athletics and it varies. It varies between division one, two, three. I've served at Merrimack College in Massachusetts as the board chair, which is going division one. I've served as the chair of the Patriot League, which is division one and a mid-major. And I've served division three in the president's athletic conference out in Western Pennsylvania for W and J And in each case, the campus culture meant something different. It played into athletics in a different way. Now, uh, W&J played to a tie at the Rose Bowl in 1922, if I remember correctly. It's still there, very much present in the campus culture. Bucknell uh, beat Kansas uh, in 2005 in, in March Madness. That was my first year as president there. And I can tell you the impact that had on campus culture. And I think the danger sometimes is that because it's the tie that binds, particularly as you scale up to the sort of SEC such, SEC style schools, it can be the sort of tail wagging the dog in the sense that the culture can be overwhelmed by the athletic experience quite as much as the athletic experience shaped by the culture on the campus. And one has to constantly as a president or board chair or provost, be thinking about that in terms of you know what you allow to shape, in uh, in what what kind of way. And I'll give you an example. Um, you're you're you've decided that you cannot support. You choose your number: twenty-five, thirty, uh, Division One sports, uh, and that there are some. While all are important, you have a major fundraising campaign coming, and you're the president. Is this the time necessarily to begin to cut out, as Stanford did? To cut out i think it was 11 in stanford's case 11 uh, division one sports well maybe you can do that if you're stanford but apart from the other three or four institutions in the country that would even have the courage to do that whether it's a good idea or not that's about as far as it goes because you've got to factor in what the campus culture can tolerate strategically if you want to move it forward and in some respects athletics can shape or determine how far or Uh, whether or not, in fact, you can even go that far as a college or university president if you want to change strategy.
0: Brian, building on what you just said, you know, Jonathan Holloway, who's the, uh, I think it's in the second year or third year at Rutgers, the president Mm -hmm. there, just made a a remark to his faculty senate, which really struck me as being quite honest and direct. And he said, for too long, the entire Rutgers community has been laboring under the illusion that athletics will generate enough revenue to pay for itself and then, in turn, in time, pay, turn a profit. Let me disabuse you of that claim. <laughs> While I would be thrilled if athletics were to cover all of its expenses, it's highly unlikely that it will. Only 2% of major college athletics programs run in the black, and not many more than that break even. The better way to think about athletics is that it represents a commitment by the university that helps tell a compelling story about this institution. One that will inspire applicants alumni and friends to learn about more about what we have to offer as a university in 2022. In this regard, the storytelling capability athletics far outstrips any other thing that we do at Rutgers. Do you agree with this assessment? Is this how the role that athletics plays at that kind of institutional
2: level?
1: Uh, do you want me to go first, Joe, or did you want to?
2: I'll let you go first, Brian.
1: All right. You have to be careful what you tell. As a compelling story, um, is the compelling story about the quality of the research and the intimacy of the professor-student relationship that is being told by athletics, or is it? the story of athletics at the university that is being told by athletics. Now, I know we do these 30-second spot commercials on uh, when you watch Saturday uh, NCAA basketball, for example, where it, whatever sport it is you're watching, but I don't necessarily think that there is a specific and intimate connection between athletics and academics in terms of the way athletics presents academics. We talk a lot, and I believe firmly in the concept of the student athlete. So, in that sense, we get at it. But I don't necessarily. They're thinking about new neuroscience advances in terms of the 30-second spots they're putting in uh, for the uh, athletic programs of the Saturday afternoon shows, basketball games that you're watching. And I'll use basketball as the example. So I don't see it as a compelling argument. I do think he's right. In our first book, How to Run a College, I think we, we found that one out of only one out of eight Division I programs paid for itself. So the question then becomes, is it worth, in terms of stimulating, in terms of stimulating the, the uh, student uh, faculty support for the university, and most particularly the donor and the, uh, to some extent, the trustee, the donor, the trustee, and the Alumni support, is it worth supporting athletics because it serves other ends at the university like fundraising? And I think the way you'd have to determine that is to determine when major gifts are made through athletics, are they made largely to athletics or to increase the size of the library? And that's an open question. Joey? Yeah.
2: Well, and I think. The other thing that's lost in that narrative about athletics, I don't care if it's a D1 or, you know, a very small uh, D3 school, there are very strong uh, values that athletics has and, and can impart that are important to what we're trying to do as an institution. If you look at our mission and our charter, uh, there are things like you know, leadership and there, there are... Uh, certainly teamwork, all these sorts of things that we hope to accomplish at our institution that athletics does in mass and very effectively, Um, you know, looking at athletics as if it's supposed to, I mean, how many other, let's be honest, how many other large-scale programs on campus are looked at because that for their their ability to break even or support the budget? Uh, There are a lot of things that we do that are very costly from, from uh, remediating uh, writing ability, which is more and more common as we see students coming out of high school not prepared to write at a, or read at a college level. We do ton, you know, a substantial amount of remediation. We think that's important and we know how costly it is. We think you know, the things that we do in athletics are important and that's why we do them. Uh, can it drive an enrollment model? Absolutely. Brian and I have worked at institutions where it very much drove the enrollment model, and that that revenue was important to the institution, uh, you know, not just because of what athletics did, but because it brought in the sort of students that we wanted to bring in, so I do think that it gets lost in sort of this, and I've, you know, I've I've worked at D1 institutions as well, it does get lost in this Artificiality of the chasm between athletics and academics, and, and even at a D one institution, let's face it, other than a handful of sports, though that chasm isn't that isn't even there. I mean, there there you know there are a lot of sports in D one that are you know have some of the most talented students as far as scholarly students uh, on campus. So it's it's not that those students don't exist in the D1 programs. I worked at Rice University, I can assure you those students exist in D1 programs. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. Yeah, I'll, I'll make a very quick point Karen, cause I wanna, Joey raised the point that I was only speaking about division one schools. Uh, as somebody who represented division three school, if you have 120 players, male players on your football team and you have a 65% rate, otherwise female to male ratio on campus, you can begin to redress, and rather dramatically, in a school of 1,000 or 1,200 students, your gender balance. It, it, athletics can play all sorts of roles that aren't necessarily the sort of compelling interest roles in terms of pushing the, athletic, the uh, academics forward. They are a bottom line consideration at many Division three schools.
0: Yeah, and I understand that. And one of the things that I've noticed, though, is that many Division Three schools that do have football are struggling with their Title IX, Prong One, if you will. So the other other mechanisms of becoming into compliance with Title IX become Prong Two, which is a history and continuing opportunity of expanding opportunities for the underrepresented gender. Or three, that you've basically offered everything you can possibly consider offering. Mm-hmm. So I think it's tough because there's more women than men right. going to college right now. But football plays such a central role in so many small college campuses for campus spirit and alumni and homecoming and those kinds of things. Any, any thoughts on those? Uh, Joey, you want to go first?
2: Sure. I mean, it, it's really the double whammy of, of football yeah. and men's baseball. Yeah. <laughs> on a small campus. I mean, or
0: lacrosse or yeah. men's lacrosse. Yeah,
2: exactly. But I mean, if you if you look at those two, uh, it is really hard with 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 female sports to balance that out or with female activities in general, because you can't go to those other prongs. But I mean, even if you added everything that you can think of, it's on a numbers basis. It's very, very difficult. Um, And I, you know, I I think that that. uh both the, both the federal government and, uh, you know, the, the athletic associations are looking for intent, right? You're, you're trying to, to make that equity balance. But it, it becomes a, a very difficult situation.
1: It's both an addition and a subtraction problem, too. Mm-hmm. I can tell you that presidents can get into trouble if they decide to begin to subtract sports from their campus to come into Title IX compliance. Right. Um, I, I can I know of one example where one and I probably shouldn't name names because these folks are friends. One individual often offered to dredge a river uh, so the crew team could continue playing. <laughs>
0: I'm not <Wow>. surprised.
1: <laughs> I'm what not you, surprised. What, 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 what do you say? <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, yeah, it's an interesting business that we're in when it comes to these kinds of things. There's no doubt about it.
1: Is, it. It. it is, Karen. <laughs>
0: So in the book, you have a lot to say about the previous restrictions on names, image and likenesses. You were pretty adamant that the NCAA was doing something entirely unethical by restricting athletes from leveraging their NIL. So how's it going now? What do you think about where we are?
1: Uh, Joey, I think this is a question for you and I hope you use the Princeton example that, that you and I talk about from time to time.
2: I surely will. I mean, all right. our favorite, our, our favorite example is when Brooks Shields went to Princeton and took a scholarship. They did not claim to own her NIL. Um, and, and you can look at this at you know graduate students who, who get a lot of aid from institutions. Uh, they don't typically say we own everything. We, not, we most don't even say we own your intellectual property, much less your name, Im- image, and likeness. So the hypocrisy, and, and you know, I understand how we went down this road. You know, it started with licensing and then with video games and all these things. Nobody had ever really thought about it, and they never thought it would be worth as much as it ended up being worth. But there was a point at which it was ludicrous in a, in a, in a, in a student-athlete model to be making those kind of, of revenues and, and claim that you had the right to do so. And I think that there has been great progress, actually. I actually think in NCAA D one there has been great progress in general in the last few years, as they have, as they've stopped saying they're going to struggle with these problems and they're actually going to do something about them.
0: Interesting, Brian, your thoughts?
1: I think I'll just echo what Joey said. Now's the time to act. Um, the the cat the the sort of Pandora's box is it, it's open, and so now they have to figure out how to how to solve the problem. Um, I think that. Um, the Brooke Shields example is a very good example, not because it's an actress or an actor, uh, but because it illustrates, in fact, that there is has to be a consistency in, in the approach.
0: Yeah, yeah. So speaking of now is the time. Each division, one, two, and three, is hard at work trying to assemble a new constitution right, that right. works for everyone, no small task. What suggestions do you both have for the working groups? Okay.
1: Joey, you want to start, or do you want me to? I'll start, I guess. Okay. Um, well, I mean, I
2: really think that there needs—I mean—to to try to come up with a consistent model that stretches across scholarship and non-scholarship is is probably a, a Sisyphean task. Honestly, uh, they're really very different. Um, so I, you know, I think divisions one and two need to work together to come up with a very uniform application of athletic scholarships. Division three has been. Exceedingly consistent in comparison on their side. So when you look at Division One and Two, you know there really is a balancing act, and it's not just about who gets the revenue. It's about what's good for the students, right? Um, Your student is the first word in that student athlete model, and you know it probably wouldn't be healthy if they were making six hundred thousand dollars a year uh, off of those rights. Um, alternately, it's probably not healthy when they leave without a degree to pursue a professional career without anything to fall back on. I mean, so I think it's all about that balance, but I think they're entering into it in the, with the right uh, approach, which is we're going to come up with a uniform model that we can get complete consistency, whether it be the SEC or the most, uh, the smallest D2 conference anyone's ever heard of. And I think that that is is that that is appropriate. In a way, they can look to D3 for that, of having an absolutely consistent model that doesn't waver.
1: Interesting. I, I, I'd I say, you know, basic question, what's a scholar athlete? You know, you, you have to start by asking, what is it you're trying to do? I think this is a tremendous, like Joey, I think this is a tremendous opportunity uh, for athletics, college and university-based athletics to begin the, the sort of, know everything's out of the bag now to begin to have a conversation but i think each of the various divisions if they're constituted in the same way at the end of it has to look at purpose mission scope and scale Um, because being playing for the university of alabama and playing for um oh choose emory and henry college uh, it's just a different it's just it's different it's different in terms of what the culture uh, expects it's what the different in terms of what the culture can and will support uh, and it's different uh, in terms of how we the American public perceive the institution. What I'd also say is whatever happens in the Constitution it should go back and reflect the mission of like-minded institutions. Mm-hmm. It should it should be consistent not only with you know where the puck is likely to be, but it should also be consistent with the history and traditions you, I'm a historian by training. You do not want to throw the history and traditions aside as you craft something new for the 21st century, because that would be a profound mistake.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree. Joey, Lyon is about, as just announced you're leaving the NAIA and transitioning to Division Three. This is a big deal in a lot of respects, but crucial in that you are moving from awarding athletic scholarships, I assume, to not having any athletic scholarships help our listeners understand this decision?
2: Well, I resigned from Lyon last year, so I can probably be a little more uh, open in my answer to that, that, just knowing that this is not me talking uh, on behalf of the institution. But I mean, it was certainly a, a, a an open discussion and a pretty heated one at times, as you can imagine. But, you know, Lion is a small uh, is, is, is recognized as a National Liberal Arts College. It's on the small end of that spectrum with about 650 students. And so it sees its peer institutions as, as, as other liberal arts colleges. And I think that's a big part of it. Uh, the, the NAI conference it was playing in. And let's, let's look at the historical connection there. Why was it in NAI? Why did it have, have athletic scholarships? Because for the longest time athletics at Lyon was male and female basketball. That was it. And so you had you know 12, 12 person squad on each side, and you were NAIA because NAIA was a basketball conference. And, you know and, and so historically it made all the sense in the world. And when you're talking about you know a couple of handfuls of student athletes just playing basketball, you don't worry about how you're scholarshipping and because I mean honestly, you're doing it the way everyone else is. And it's such a small part of your campus life and, you know, your student body that it, it, it's not as big of an issue. As uh, athletics became a much bigger part of Flyn's of conception of itself and, you know, and becoming an institution with more than 50% of, of students as student athletes, uh, that's very different. Now you have, you know, a dozen uh, male and female sports. You have, uh, you know, a, a large part of, of your, your, uh, your budget thinking about how you're going to utilize athletics. And, you know, you're really f- playing with a group of schools that probably you wouldn't consider as peer institutions in regard to your mission. And that's not, that's not to be a negative comment. It's just true. And so I think that there was a, a thinking that a we would be better off as an institution playing with with schools that were more like us and you know and and, and, and comp- sort of competing in that market And then also the question of uh, you know how you would how you would award scholarships as an institution and when it when when literally athletic scholarships become your dominant uh, form of scholarship uh, kind of just organically and you start to think about was well, this really, emphasizing the values of what we're trying to do here. And it's not that there won't be a, a, a fairly significant scholarship model. It just won't be an athletic scholarship model once the shift is made. Mm-hmm. There'll be things like leadership scholarships and you know and, and sportsman years and all these things that you can build around a non-scholarship model. You look at discounting and that's of course the way we look at it as higher ed leaders, the discounting will be very similar it wasn't done as a, as a discounting uh, maneuver to try to, to make more net revenue. I think it was predominantly done philosophically. And that's probably the right way to approach it because philosophically, you're thinking about your mission and you're thinking about your, your vision and your charter and you're making decisions based on those things. And while they may not be popular, and and, and I suspect, and I, but I don't know this, I'm no longer there, but I suspect that there has been some alumni pushback and some some uh, former scholarship athletes who think that this is not the best idea. Uh, but I think that the institution, the faculty, the, the coaching staff, and the, you know, the trustees and the leadership all came together and thought that this was the right thing for the institution going forward.
0: It makes sense, having been a part of the NAIA and understanding how that transition, there also just seemed to be more opportunities for postseason events. In Division Three, than there is in the NAI. they just seem to be a broader range of opportunities. Did that strike you as important as well?
2: That did. And the other thing that happened in the, in the during this whole process of this conversation is NAI collapsed its two divisions into one, so that exacerbated the problem of the differing types of institutions. And yes, there you know it was it, there. There, there, were, there were the considerations of, of post. Of, 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 postseason play. There were the considerations of travel. Uh, you know, <laughs> If you think gerrymandering is bad in, in, in elections, look <laughs> at the way some of these conferences are, are designed. I mean, they're just not ideal. And that's another thing. I mean, historically, there was an Arkansas Athletic Conference that was in AI, and then all the schools were in, and it made all sorts of sense. But that's long a, sen- a thing of the past. Right. And now, I think there was a sense that you could get a geographic conference that would allow like you to spend less time traveling, and of course, less money. But it's really the time that's so precious with these students. Absolutely. Um, and so, you know, that was a; th- those were all factors. I mean, and it's hard to balance that out. And it will be no easy transition. I mean, NCAA to, uh, is not an easy transition. At best, it's three years. It's more likely five, yeah. depending on how you approach it. Either way, mm-hmm. that is a very arduous process.
0: It is. I've led an institution from no affiliation into Division Three, so yeah. I know exactly what what you were thinking about there, gentlemen. My last question for you is: you conclude in the book a frank assessment of what colleges need to do to face the future. What are some of your observations about that, and what should we do,
1: Brian? Well, yeah, I think Joey would make me since he, although he wrote the accreditation chapter, I wrote the, I wrote the concluding chapter. So he expects me to remember what I wrote, I think, <laughs> since, since he agreed with it. Um, I think the first thing I'd say is that um, this book is really for trustees uh, and others, but certainly for trustees. It's, it's an effort to assert the role of leadership within a changing set of circumstances that were exacerbated. We call it the third inflection point exacerbated both by the Great Recession and by the COVID pandemic and its aftermath now. So the first thing I think we have to do is we have to recognize that in fact COVID has fairly dramatically and, and the Great Recession have fairly dramatically changed the relationship of the college or the university to its environment. That is also exacerbated by the fact that there is a demographic crash coming, that consumer preferences have changed, That endowments are fine when you have them but they're largely restricted uh, and that uh, there is a significant amount of uh, crushing uh, debt level uh, in college and university situations right now that they have to face. So the argument that I think we make is an important one because it goes to the heart of governance and what we argue is that governance is the three-legged stool. We support it but that in fact you really have to begin to think carefully about who you place in leadership roles within governance. And I'll look at quickly at three examples. In the first example, be careful who you choose as president. Um, We argue that there are three types of presidents uh, and the argument that we come, the conclusion we come to is the president best suited as we move into the second quarter of the 21st century is likely to be the strategist, not the presider president And not the bull in the china shop. Uh, And you have to think about, you have to think about in a rapidly changing world that is governed by technology, you can't even envision how you begin to shape and to factor the set of circumstances that allow you to remain true to mission and yet also prepared to be creative enough to anticipate, again, as I said before, where the puck is going to head. For board chairs, we we argue the trustees are the weakest of the three legs. And then for board chairs, you have to begin to sort of shepherd your resources. You have to begin to work as a teammate. You have to understand the role of the board chair. And most important, what she or he does not do. Mm -hmm. And because there is a tendency to assume administrative duties when it is isn't appropriate. For the faculty, we think the best way to think about governance for the faculty is to have them focus on what faculty do. They're the keepers of the flame who protect the academic enterprise. And what we, what we found in the leadership, uh, as we thought about leadership is that the best faculty leaders will be seasoned individuals who understand that in fact, the academic core of the college or university is in fact the thing that they should safeguard jealously and they should also protect and nurture. Now, what that means also is that there are two aspects. And you're at University of Pennsylvania, so you'd understand this perfectly, I think. There are two things about in any uh, in any situation. You know, the joke about Penn is it's a large real estate holding. It is both an academic enterprise, but it is also an economic powerhouse in the region, in the nation, uh, and that's true. Uh, depending upon the size and scale of the institution at any institution across the country. The economic engine aspect of this makes colleges and universities important in two ways, both because they keep the academic integrity and the cultural history in place for this generation and for future generations, and also they are the economic powerhouses that transform cities like the one I, I grew up near Boston. And if you know the Boston of the 1960s and 70s, and you know the Boston I just visited last week in a speech in 2022, they're in very different places. You still recognize it, but the function and purpose is different. And it was fueled by the economic weight of the colleges and universities and hospitals and the biotech initiatives in the region. The last point I'd make is that, and Joey, I think you'll support me here, is that higher education has to think about how it becomes more relevant. It's lost and is losing the sort of public relations value of the the battle rather over the value of American higher education. And that's where leadership matters because if board chairs and presidents and faculty heads and provosts and all of the other folks who constitute the constituency upon which leadership is based understand their role, then they have to understand that they need to be able to make certain that higher education remains relevant in a society that increasingly it is largely helping to shape.
0: Yeah. Joey, your thoughts?
2: Well, I echo I, I those thoughts. I don't, think, you know, I don't think that we're entering the easiest period for higher education. You know, When we talk about these inflection points, the other two were the Long Depression following the Civil War and the Great Depression. Uh, we think it's that, that sort of challenging mm-hmm. moment. And we're also facing a challenging moment for our country and the world. I mean, I think in the last couple of weeks, we've seen that very clearly. Uh, you know, de- Democratic values are being challenged and for colleges and universities in a democratic society, we're called upon to lead that conversation. And I know that many of our colleagues are reticent because that is not a popular conversation to, um, not, not to it's not a popular conversation to have much less to lead um, but that is clearly the role of these institutions. And so, you know, I, I think that in a very challenging time, there are challenges, uh, both, you know, domestic and international that, that lead us to, to have to, to be probably quite a bit more, um, uh, well, I think there's, there's a certain amount of bravery required. There's a certain amount of putting yourself into that breach and saying, we need to have this conversation. We think it's important in our creation of citizens, which is embodied in almost every college or university mission, and we're equal to that task. So it's not just about uh, getting your institution through a difficult enrollment period. It's about getting it through a difficult enrollment period with a lot of other uh, very difficult things happening. And I think that it's gonna call upon uh, leadership more than it has in generations. And so the work you do at Penn GSE is critically important during this period because, it, you know, when you go between 70 and 90 years between these inflection points, there aren't any leaders left over. And so they're every time they're born out of the crucible of, of what we're dealing with. And I think that that's, that's what is happening right now and, and will be happening uh, for the rest of my career in higher ed.
0: So well said both of you and um, you've really given me and hopefully my listeners a lot to think about about the important role that while we can get lost in the minutia of March Madness and athletics that the bigger picture of higher ed is about having an inclusive environment that allows our future leaders to grow and to thrive and to think. And I think that's uh, something that I've really enjoyed and heard loudly from the two of you writing partners, thought partners in this process. So thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you. It was a great pleasure. It was fun actually to sort of spend some time with Joey. We still remain friends after two books together. That's
2: good. (laughs) And you can tell we clearly like talking about this. So we appreciate your inviting us. I can
0: tell. I can tell. Thank you both.
1: Thank you, Karen.